Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, if you've been listening to my show for a number of times, you know that I believe that when experts are leaders, they tend to adopt some very specific leadership habits. Those habits serve them well in lots of places. And I'm talking about things like not playing politics or sometimes being quite brutally, not badly, but direct, honest, telling the truth. They do also tend to tell a bit more than they tend to coach or enable, and they'll put a lot of emphasis on the content, not necessarily as much on the relationships. And those pesky emotions are things that we would like to brush away and get down to the facts of the matter. Now, as I've said, none of those are bad qualities. They're actually really quite good qualities, and they serve expert leaders well in lots of ways. However, as you begin to step away from your expertise, they start to be hindrances and they can certainly be overdone. So I want to talk about those kind of career habits, actually mistakes, if you will. That's what we're going to focus on today that can actually limit people's careers. Now, we're going to come at this from a very different approach. My guest today is Sally Helgeson, and she is a best-selling author, a speaker, a leadership coach. She's been cited in Forbes as one of the world's premier experts on women's leadership. And for the last 30 years, her mission has really been about helping women leaders around the world recognize, articulate, and act on their strengths. And she's worked with a lot of senior teams around how to build inclusive cultures. She's been doing that for a long time, not just in gender. Now, her most recent book, How Women Rise, is co-authored with the coaching legend Marshall Goldsmith, and it's become an incredibly good top-selling title. Sally's written several other books as well, The Female Advantage, The Female Vision, and The Web of Inclusion. Now, this may sound like we're going to talk about women. We're not. I want to talk about careers in general, and I'll ask Sally that question when we get started. So, Sally, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. It's wonderful to be here with you. I love the theme of your show. Thank you very much. And it's, I'm delighted to have you as a guest. It's awesome. So let's start with the top of this one. I kind of teased it up. You've specialized in working with women. And the book that I just cited, How Women Rise, is largely written, written for women. However, I find the habits that you describe are just as relevant to men as they are to women, and particularly to men who are experts. What's your experience? What's your belief? I agree with that, Wanda. Um, you know, the, uh, the basic idea for How Women Rise came when I noticed that some of the behaviors in Marshall's best-selling book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, didn't seem to apply that much uh, to women. So I suggested to him, let's do a book that focuses on the habits that get in women's ways. So that was the original intention. But since the book came out, so many men have come up and said, I really identify with these habits, that I've had two realizations. One is that they are human habits. They're not gender-specific habits, and that they can get in anybody's way. And secondly, that they had perhaps gotten left out of what got you here won't get you there because the pool of talent that Marshall was focusing on there was drawn from his own uh, CEO base. So a lot of those CEOs 
had some different behaviors, and that's what he was addressing. So, so I've I've looked at this book as as really sort of broadening um, our understanding of what behaviors uh, can get in people's way as they seek to rise and move higher, and and how they can really manifest as as career killers at a senior level. Okay, f- career killers. I love that one. Fabulous. That's what we need to talk about. So let's go, uh, you have a lot of these in the book, and I think they're incredible. We're just going to cover a couple of them over the next hour. But talk to me about one of the habits in particular that you see is most critical, especially for expert leaders. The most critical for expert leaders is the habit in the book, I call it habit three, which is overvaluing expertise. And that is focusing all your attention um, on mastering the details and doing a great job in the job you have. Keeping your head down uh, and trying to master those details rather than going into a position and asking as your first question, who do I need to engage here to make sure that I make a success of this? Um, the result of that overemphasis on expertise is often less visibility, less support, and a whole lot more work. And I will tell you that overvaluing expertise is probably the behavior that I most frequently hear men say that they also share, especially men who are in subject uh, uh, subject matter, who are subject matter experts, be they accountants, be they engineers, be they scientists. Uh, Etc. Those who are outside of the, you know, sales and marketing world, this is very common. I actually think it's also true in the sales and marketing world because anymore in the sales and marketing world, you get specialized in a region, mm-hmm. in a product, in a type of client, in an industry, and it's a different kind of subject matter expertise. But this is interesting. I want to go back though because that's not the point I want to debate. That you said that the first thing is you put all the attention on the details, and that gives you less visibility, less support, and a lot more work to do. So explain how that works. Well, you know, it can work in a way where, for example, um, you develop your expertise and you, you, you come into a new position, um, you may be a little bit insecure about the expertise you have. Say you're in engineering. You want to really demonstrate. You want to stick to your bench as an engineer mm-hmm. to really demonstrate to your colleagues, to your boss, that you have earned your place there. Uh, and when you do that, then you're going to be focused right on, okay, I've got to do this. I, I'm not going to engage other people in helping me position myself, gain visibility, develop the connections that I need, I'm going to wait and do that later when I am comfortable with my expertise. The other thing that can happen that I've seen happen a lot is that you can always feel as if you're not ready for the next job because you recognize that there are more details to master, so you keep yourself stuck and don't necessarily rise to the next level that you actually are maybe highly qualified for because you're so focused on on honing that expertise. So, so it's a, a real, you know, serious way uh, to keep you stuck, and it can make you. And I think this is what's so important for the theme of 
of, of what you talk about on this show, it can make you very risk-averse because when you're focused on identifying yourself as an expert, you get really uh, invested in the details, and then you don't develop those other capabilities that are going to help you uh, lead and manage teams of people because right. of your focus being rather narrow. I have two follow-on comments on that one is I can't tell you how many times I talk to people who are experts who are who look at the job description, male or female, and say, I don't know all of that by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> yes, that's but you know, yeah, if you don't you're have taking, the job yet, so how would you know? Right. Well I know I say if you're taking a job where you know more than sixty percent of it, you're not gonna get a stretch. That's right. You're likely to Definitely. be bored at the end of it, so it doesn't do much for you. The other one is I want to quote from Mark Howells. He was a guest on the radio show a couple of years ago, and I give this quote all the time because I think it's so insightful. He says, the biggest mistake people make in their careers is trying to prove that you deserve the job. That's You've already exactly got right. the job. Get on with doing it. That's exactly right, and I think that that's why people will keep their head down because they they don't want to be seen doing their job until they are confident that they can do 60, 70, 80%, whatever, of the job, whereas that's going to be a learning curve, and that's going to take you uh, some time, and that's why, I say, you can become risk-averse. I had the most moving comment I had presented at a law firm in Atlanta about, um, about overvaluing expertise. We had a kind of seminar on it. And one of the women came up to me afterwards as a, uh, an attorney, up, you know, a, she wasn't a partner. She was a, a junior partner or assistant or something. She said to me, she said, you know, this is the first time I've really understood what happened. She said, I spent 14 years of my career learning to write the best brief in the world. And guess what? It didn't get me where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, you got to show some of that, but it isn't enough to stick with that, I think. But anyway, interesting, fascinating. So, Sally, and I love that quote, 14 years to yeah. learn to write the best brief in the world, and that isn't, doesn't get me where I want to go. Exactly. So how do, what do people begin to do to break this habit um, of overvaluing expertise? How do you advise people to make a change? I think that the, the, the first thing you've got to do is recognize that you do have, as you would put it, a need to get out of your comfort zone. So I think you want to begin taking measured risks within a circle where you feel that there's real trust. Let me give you an example. You come in, you're a begin, you're, you know, you're new in a job, uh, say in, in accountancy or some area of financial services, and you feel, you know, you've only got about 40, 50% of the skills. So instead of waiting until you feel more up to speed, on day one, on day one, you start engaging people to, to help you develop the skills that you'll need. You recognize that building allies is as important as improving your expertise. So you might say to somebody who's, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I think that there are areas in this position that I really have the chops for, but there are other areas I've never done. I've noticed you seem to be particularly good at X. Um, could I get some of your advice about getting up to speed? So you've already engaged that person in helping you get better at what 
you're trying to get better at, which is going to give you more information, more sources, more support, but also in doing it, you've taken a small measured risk by revealing the fact that you don't feel, hey, I've got this job down 100%. So it's finding ways to, right from the start, take small measured risks so that you become more comfortable operating out of your comfort zone. It's interesting, Sally. When I talk to senior leaders in organizations, and I routinely ask them about, you know, a career turning point, a catalyst move that they made, and, you know, how much risk was involved and how nervous they were and how to keep their confidence up and so on, one of the striking characteristics they tell me routinely is that it was way out of the comfort zone, there was a lot they didn't know, and they found a source of people to reach out to very quickly, And that reaching out is what helped them ultimately be successful. So interesting parallels. Yeah, that's what I find too, Wanda. It's that reaching out because you get comfortable, as I said, in in small ways, operating out of your comfort zone. So it's, you know, operating out of your comfort zone and taking risks is really a skill. It's not something that some people have and some people don't. It's a skill that you learn, but the most effective way to do that is engage others. And then you not only have their eyes, but you also, you also have their support. And that's essential uh, for having the comfort to move higher. Okay, fabulous. All right, now, that's a, is it straightforward advice, this notion that you take measured risks and that it's a skill that you learn to take these risks and that you learn to be able to operate outside of your comfort zone, all right? So I'm going to take you that. But there's this long-standing habit I have, let's say, that says I can't show my vulnerability at all. Right. A yeah. huge fear of admitting that I'm not perfect. Yeah. Or I don't have it all down pat, and a fear that people will reject me as a result. So how do you advise people to cope with that sort of inner dialogue of imposter syndrome or confidence or lack of vulnerability? Well, I think, first of all, it's really important when you're just beginning to open up and show some vulnerability or show your uncertainty about having every single qualification nailed down perfectly from the start. I think it's really important to start with someone that you identify the person you feel most comfortable bringing in and asking their advice. Um, this is one of the reasons I you know, have been working with and, and recommending peer coaching for a very, very long time. Uh, that is working with a colleague or it can be a friend. It can be somebody outside the organization if you're too inhibited uh, to, to make the start internally to get somebody and say, you know, I'm really, I need to work on being more honest about what some of my, um, I don't want to put the big word fear around it, but what some of my concerns are about not being seen as an expert. Will you help me on this? This is what I'd like to work on for a month. And then as you, as you, as you engage somebody, then have them, you know, make up some questions for them to ask you uh, in terms of, you know, how much are you proceeding, how much are you trying to make these kind of risks. Being accountable to somebody else is a very, very, is very profound and essential 
in making any kind of behavioral or habit change. Trying to do it alone doesn't work, basically. Marshall did this uh, uh, fantastic piece of research. They surveyed, I think, 800,000 people in organizations. And what they found was that the people who were able to make sustained and positive behavioral change had one thing in common, and that is that they engaged other people. So start with people you trust, start with something small, take small risks, and then get accustomed to that. Okay. Now, you have a bit of a model for how any of these habits can change. And I'm presuming one of those is this notion that I get somebody else, I'm accountable to somebody else, I tell them out loud that I'm going to do it, and then I want them to follow me, ask me questions about it, and so on. Are there other steps in the process that really make for effective habit changes? Yes, certainly. And and that's really hab- that's really the second step. The first habit is to be very specific in identifying something that evidence suggests to you is getting in your way. It can be the evidence of a performance review. It can be an evidence of you find you keep bumping your head up against the same uh, issue over and over. You want to break it down and try to think of something very specific and small you want to change. Uh, we've talked about overvaluing expertise. Another thing can be if you're not very good at, if you're reluctant to claim your achievements, which is something that often goes with expertise because you feel insecure about your ability to claim your achievements because you know the fatal and horrible secret that you're not perfect uh, in every, uh, every possible circumstance. So you want to break it down and start with something very small, a very small specific behavior. Then you want to engage somebody. And then as you engage somebody, and this is why it's important to do that early in the process, you want to learn to let go to some degree of the judgment that you have on yourself for not being perfect. And that's a very difficult thing to do, um, but, you know, it's often effectively addressed with, you know, putting slogans up, I tend to be a perfectionist. Um, Marshall, my co-author, is not a perfectionist. I was working with him one day, and uh, he, his assistant called, and I heard him, and he said, oh, I forgot to call Dr. X back, and, um, and he said, oh, 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 well, I'll call him after this. And I happened to know who Dr. X was. He was, um, he was the CEO of the World Bank, and all I could think is, oh, my Goodness, if I forgot to make a call to the CEO of the World Bank, I would be ready to go down the drain right now. I would be giving myself such a hard time. When will I ever learn, et cetera, et cetera. Marshall had said, oh, well. So I came home. I put a big sign above my desk. It said, oh, well. So I think those kind of little slogans and reminders as we're trying to train ourselves uh, to be less judgmental can really be helpful. Okay. All right. So just to repeat this, it's to get it very specific, something small, very specific, that's evidence-based, and that's a behavior. It's an action. We can measure it. And then I want to engage somebody, tell somebody I'm trying to do this, engage their help, get them to ask me how I'm doing, and create a little bit of accountability. And then it's the let go of the judgment about myself that I haven't already solved whatever this problem is. And that's where the slogans like, oh, well, or I'll steal another one from um, someone I admire a great deal, which is I'm a work in progress. 
Yeah, exactly. Any you of those. You want to remind yourself that perfectionism is not a realistic human goal and that it is a way of keeping yourself stuck and unhappy. There's only one other thing I'd like to say. It, once you have engaged somebody, don't stop the process there. Say you've asked somebody's advice. Say you've engaged somebody to serve you as a peer coach. Say you've asked someone in your unit how they do something or if they could watch you do something and see where you might be having problems. Once you've done that, keep doing it because it is a an highly effective habit. Okay. Great. I love it. All right. So well, you were just talking about perfectionism. So yes. let's go to your second career mistake, which is the perfectionist trap. Yeah. And perfectionism is very often allied with um, overvaluing expertise. They really go together. But the thing that, that I think is special about perfectionism is overvaluing expertise can hold you back at whatever stage you're at in your career. Being a perfectionist is going to be the killer, especially as you move to a higher level, because you're going to have trouble. Since you're expecting perfection of yourself, you're going to have trouble trusting other people. You're going to have a very difficult time delegating uh, tasks. You're going to find it tough to trust others, Um, but you're going to certainly... um, risk, chronic risk aversion by being perfectionistic. You'll lose sight of the big picture. And and remember, people who are in leadership positions are always going to be valued for having a big picture, slightly strategic view, as opposed to a narrow view. But it's very hard to be big picture focused when you feel that every detail has to be perfect. And also, you're going to create an unsustainable amount of stress at a higher level if you're a perfectionist, not only for yourself, but for the people around you. Think, try to think of an example, Wanda, where you've ever heard anybody say, oh, I work for a perfectionistic boss and I love it. No one loves yeah, no. it, ever. Right. So right. You, you know that you're going to be creating stress. So you know, being a perfectionist can serve you on the way up because people just think, oh, you she does fantastic work. Uh, you know, he's totally reliable. What a worker. Um, you, you know, gets every detail right, crosses every T, dots every I. But at higher levels, that stress is really going to undermine you seriously. I love that you put the emphasis on the stress that it creates in the people that are underneath you, because I think it's exactly where it is. And I find that's what kills people for overworking. That's where they go over stuff that they really shouldn't be going over or they lose sleep on a mistake that they shouldn't have made a mistake on and they can't take their vacation time because something's always come up that they've got to step in and get exactly perfect. That's exactly right because the world can't go on without you because you're the person who's got the weight of the world on your shoulders because you demand and exhibit perfection in what you do. And it's a terrible, terrible place to be. And if you don't stress out the people around you uh, and undermine yourself, you will stress out yourself and undermine yourself first because it is such you cannot refresh yourself. You cannot reframe. You cannot 
think in in big and relaxed terms about what would be something that would be really imaginative and helpful to do later if you're that focused on delivering perfectly at every stage. So a big part, a big crucial part of exhibiting leadership and of getting out of your comfort zone is to really learn how to let that perfectionism go and recognize the way in which it can be getting in your own way. Okay. And it's hard. I'm not saying that's yeah. not hard. I've, I've worked on this for years. Um, and, and, you know, for many people, the culture and the structure that they're in, you know, gives them a lot of support for trying oh, to yeah. be perfect. But yeah. it, will, yeah. it will kill you at a higher level. Yeah. I see an awful lot of people who have been rewarded, exactly as you said, as they've risen because of the perfectionism. And they believe now that their bosses still demand that same level of attention to detail. And some of them do, I might add, because some of them, you know, we got one more level of a perfectionist manager creating stress and chaos. Uh, But some of them just cannot figure out what is okay not to be perfect. So do you have any advice on how we draw the line between what I can't let go of and what I can let go of being perfect? Well, yeah, I think that one thing you can do is, you know, the sort of 20-80 rule. Like what, you know, what is doing 80%? You know, practice delivering 80%. If you're a perfectionist, it's going to make you very, very uncomfortable because you're leaving that 20% undone. But you really want to do some sort of triage about what is really important to be able to focus on here um, and what, you know, what doesn't really matter that much. And, yes, some organizations, I was a speechwriter decades ago, and uh, and that's you know what really got me into writing about organizations was having that close up view uh, in uh, in in so many of the companies I worked for. But I worked at a place where um, the Xerox machine in the speechwriter's pen was set at 18, and that meant that every single you know you were writing like good morning to five people, and everything had to go through 18 drafts and be marked up by somebody else. So cultures, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not letting organizational cultures off the hook. They certainly do yeah. uh, create some of this. But, but, you know, you, the most important thing you can do as a leader is going to be create a comfortable situation in which people can bring their best. And if people are frightened, they're not going to bring their best. So you want to prepare yourself to be able to create that comfortable environment. And the, 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 really the best way to do that that I know is, is things like, you know, 80 to 20. Consciously leave 20% good enough and deliver on your 80%. And once you get in a habit like that, you get more comfortable with the idea, well, it's not perfect, but I think by an objective measure, this is probably, probably good enough. Okay. Well, I like that you said you consciously leave 20%. That's not good enough. That doesn't mean I leave 20% fundamentally horribly flawed. No. It means I leave it good enough. That's exactly right. 20% fundamentally flawed is not going to be a successful work output. But 20% of it not worked over to the utmost and left in good enough form uh, is going to be, you know, is, is in most situations going to serve you better than the stress you will create trying to get to 100% on every single detail. Fabulous. 
Okay, Sally, um, we're going to take a break at this point. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the global context of some of this work as well. And then I want to continue talking about a couple of other habits that you also see as major career killers, especially for experts. My guest today is Sally Helgeson. The book is How Women Rise, and she's written a number of other books as well. Best-selling author, speaker, and leadership coach, and fabulous colleague in many ways. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network if you want more information on the articles books coaching and seminars we offer go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com you're sure to find some helpful links videos and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization leadership forum inc helping organizations get it and keep it How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. 
With me today is Sally Helgeson, and the book we have been talking about is How Women Rise. Now, what you should realize at this point that it isn't just about women by a long stretch of the imagination. It's about people rising in their careers, particularly experts, and the things that they do, the habits that they get into that may have served them well at one point, but they become absolute career killers in the long run. We've just been talking about two habits. One is the overvaluing of expertise, which means that that leads you to have a lot of work to do, less support, and less visibility. And the second habit is the perfectionist trap. And that's where you create a place where people are fundamentally afraid. And if that's the case, afraid of not doing a good enough job. If that's the case, then they're not going to bring their best self. So you're going to find that you create stress underneath you as opposed to create the lovely environments we'd all like to have from our leaders. I love the fact that Sally said no one ever says they love working for a perfectionist boss (laughs) and that rests the case. All right. Now, before we go on and talk about some of the other habits, there are 12 of them in the book, by the way. Um, I want to talk about different cultures. So, you know, one of the... One of the things that I find, Sally, is that different cultures, depending where they're interfacing, tend to have a series of problems in themselves. So that's an ambiguous question. How do you find these habits apply to, let's say, Asian cultures? You know, Wanda, I think one of the things that fascinated me since I started to do my my work, both with the Female Advantage uh, in 1990 and then with the Web of Inclusion, uh, both of which have done you know thousands of workshops all over the world on over the years. One of the things that's always struck me was uh, kind of being amazed at how applicable a lot of what I was talking about was in different parts of the world. However, um, the, sh- the the focus is often a little bit different uh, because culture impacts. In, in the example of how women rise and you know, looking at behaviors and habits that are career killers, culture impacts how we develop um, and what we emphasize. Um, so even though we're in a global economy, and particularly because we're in a global economy, we need to be aware, you know, what is my culture? How, is my, how does my culture reward or punish behaviors that can hold me back? And certainly with Asian cultures, I find, and I've you know done a fair amount of work in in Asian cultures. I'm leaving next week for Tokyo. I'll be working there uh, uh, with the, the material and how women rise. But what I find is that a couple of the habits, such as overvaluing uh, expertise, which we've been talking about, and reluctance to claim your achievements, behaviors like that, are particularly significant challenges in many Asian cultures and particularly significant for both men and women in those cultures. And I think there are really two reasons. One is the, the sort of obvious, which is the, the uh, culture of sort of prohibition on self-promotion, which can make it, you know, so you're just, I'm just going to do my job, I'm going to show up, I'm going to be appreciated and valued because of that. But the other, I think, really has to do with the fact that those those cultures still have a very, very alive and come from a craft tradition. And craft has always, um, the successful craftsman or woman is always somebody who is really expert in using whatever media that they're using, you know, whether it's, it's, it's pottery or, uh, mach, mach, you know, machine tools, whatever it is that, 
that focus on expertise is really important in a craft tradition. And the problem, of course, is, and that's a good thing. You know, again, these behaviors are good things that serve you well. But when you're moving to a higher level and you, you're, you're really being tasked with managing and coordinating people who are, who are experts themselves, then that, that focus can get in your way. So I think that, that some of these behaviors uh, or habits that are career killers uh, can be particularly acute uh, in cultures that come from that tradition or that have, um, you know, that have a prohibition on self-promotion. I find that true often in Scandinavian countries I've worked in to be, to be similar. You know, they're very, they're cultures that really pr- uh, prize group effort so that, that people who try to talk about what they've achieved or what's important to them, which is really how you position yourself as a strategic thinker, um, that's going to be often punished at, uh, at a lower level. Right, right. I certainly see that. I've seen that in my Scandinavian clients, and I definitely see all these factors showing up in any number of my Asian clients. That plus the fact if you're interfacing with a headquarters world that comes from a very different set of expectations and cultures and building those connections in ways that it makes it possible to do these is is a huge factor, I find, as well. A huge factor, and that's you know that's part of the challenge of living in a, a global economy, and and this you know sort of global being part of a global talent pool. On one hand, you bring what's valued in your culture with you, and that is helpful and positive to you as an individual and to the organization. On the other, you're also looking at in it at at at, at not so much fitting in, but standing out in a global organization and what is valued there. So it's, it's a real delicate dance that, um, that has to be done and that it's, it's heartening to see people um, having a more uh, clear understanding and recognition of this and also being able to talk about it more openly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree that that can be a conversation. I just wish we would get all of our senior managers being more facile and coaching people around all of these. I think we'd be in a lot better shape. They'd much more appreciative <laughs> along the way. We oh, can all wish. We can all wish. All right, so yeah. let's go on to talk about another one of the habits, um, expecting others to notice and value your contributions. You've kind of already teed that up a bit. So tell me why you think that's a career killer, and most importantly, what do we do about it? Well, it, it really is a, a career killer because you rarely get a, 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 acknowledged for what you contribute if you're passively expecting others to, to notice it and to value on it. Let me give you an example. I worked with, I was talking about that behavior. I was working with an, uh, a young woman who was an engineer out at a Silicon Valley company, a very global company. And uh, so I was saying, you know, that passively expecting others to notice what you contribute, either because you believe that they should if you do a good job or because you fear appearing like the most obnoxious person in the organization who's always running around talking about how great they are, if either of those reasons prevents you from, from presenting to people what you have achieved and what you're capable of, then you're going to be stuck in a very passive place of you know, just hoping other people notice. So I was talking about this, and this young woman who was an engineer uh, came up afterwards. She said, I have the most perfect example of that. She said, 
I went away on my, for my performance review on a retreat with my new boss who didn't really know me and were not co-located. And she said it was a very um, painful experience. She said because one of the things I've always felt that I was best at is, is forming connections and getting resources to flow. She said, I'm more of, a, of an extrovert than a lot of the other engineers here. She said, so people are constantly emailing me in and out of my office to ask, you know, can you help me on this, can you help me on that, and I make connections for them. She said, so I feel that that's a real essential part of my value. And she said, when I got the performance review, the boss said, my boss said, uh, I think you're excellent at your job, but you need to be more connected. She said, and I went away for about, she said, from that feeling so disheartened, and she said for about three weeks, she was really going down the rabbit hole of, you know, I don't belong here, I've got to transfer out of this division, you know, maybe I should never have become an engineer in the first place, you know, really taking it as far as she could, because she felt terrible about it. And she said, and then I realized, he had no way of knowing, because I had never told him. He didn't, he wasn't in my office, he didn't see who came in and out. He didn't monitor my email. He didn't know that I was a very connected person. She said so she decided, and she felt very awkward about it, to send him an email every Friday morning, just limiting it to three to five people saying, this week I connected with X, Y, and Z. That's it. Nothing else. Ellen. And she said she didn't hear back for about six weeks, and she thought, oh, he thinks I'm a complete jerk. Um, Why am I wasting his time? And she saw him at a, you know, a, a, a big event, and he came right up to her. He said, I want you to know how valuable that email is for me because it helps me understand who we are, who my unit is connecting with. Um, so it was just, you know, it was her taking this risk, this measured risk to, to send him a two-line email once every Friday morning, but it really, really paid off for her because she was able to alert her boss as to what she was good at. And if we, often if we just passively expect that people will notice, it doesn't happen, especially today when people are very, very busy and often not co-located. Okay. I, find, I often say to people in this one, and I love your, your statement about the passively. It doesn't work. We're just passively waiting for it. I say to people, I can't remember what I did last week let alone what you did last month, three months ago, six months ago. In fact, I'll bet you can't even remember what you did six months ago. How do you expect anybody else to remember the contributions and the, you know? So it's a similar, you can't be so passive about it. Now, do you have advice on how, you said this is, the email is one example. Do you have other examples about how to let people know without becoming obnoxious about it? Yeah, certainly. Well, you know what the first thing is, though, Wanda, I think the most important thing is to let go of this either-or idea, which Uh is either you're like the most obnoxious person or you just keep quiet. And I find that 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 framework is what keeps a lot of people stuck because immediately when they think of themselves talking about, um, you know, representing their achievements – They immediately think of, oh, well, that guy down the hall, he's such an obnoxious jerk. If I have to be like him, no thank you. You don't have to be like him or like anybody else. The first thing is you want to really figure out a way that feels comfortable for you and let go of the idea that it's going to be obnoxious. The other thing is I think that's most important, and this is, is sort of suggested, 
in that story I told about Ellen in Silicon Valley, the engineer, is that treat what you're doing as information that can be of value to other people, information other people want to know. That's how her boss saw this. He said that to her. This is information I need to know. So if you can get out of the frame of, oh, do I do self-marketing? I don't want to seem like a self-promoter. I don't want to seem like that guy down the hall. If you completely just drop that framework and think, what, what am I doing that is information that would be valuable to somebody else? So that, I think that's the, sort of the most powerful place to start, really, with that attitude. This is information. What I'm doing is information. I heard a person who was an executive at Goldman Sachs say, it was a woman, and she said she used to advise her team to stop at the end of every day and say, what did I forget to tell whom about today? It's an awkward question, but if you just stop at the end of the day and say, what happened? What did I learn? What fact do I know that I should have told somebody about? Yeah. Who was exactly. it? And send right. that email. It's that same sense of just be this conduit of information. And it stops yeah. you from being quite so passive about your worth, value, contribution. Yeah, it's important to remember that passivity isn't helping you, but it's also not helping other people. It doesn't help other people if you're passive in articulating what you're contributing because they don't know, and it can be it can be something that's very valuable for them to know. Interesting frame. I like that. And also like this notion that you tell people to let go of an either-or thinking. It's not yeah. about being quiet or the opposite, being obnoxious. There's many shades of gray in between, and there, find your own way to make that happen. Lovely. Yeah. All right. Okay, I'm a sucker for the next one. What about putting your job before your career? I love that phrasing. How? Tell us about that one. Oh, that is such a common thing. You know, again, especially among women, but I think also in cultures that tend to prize expertise um, and and be skeptical of people, you know, indulging in what they see of as, as, as self-promotion. Putting your job before your career means, you know, really focusing on what you're doing in your job, doing a successful, um, you know, fulfilling that job, which is, of course, what everybody has to do, but then expecting that what that will do is position you for the next job instead of recognizing that doing a great job basically says you're exactly qualified for the job you have. You can become, one of the real dangers of putting a job before your career is you can end up becoming indecisive to your boss so that you're going to have a reluctance uh, in terms of, you know, your boss recommending you because this happened to a woman I was working with up in Boston uh, who was at a big software company and she said, you know, I I really worked at just doing a fantastic job to show up for my boss. She said, I really liked him and I felt the work we were doing was important and I figured it would carry me to the next place. She said, and one day he came in to me, and he said, you know, I was going to recommend you for X, Y, or Z. He said, but I realized I cannot afford to lose you. She said she went away from that encounter for about two weeks. She felt really good. You know, I'm, he thinks I'm wonderful. I'm really valued here. And, um, and then she realized, well, if that's true, does that mean I'm going to be in this job forever? So she waited, which was the appropriate thing to do, until something came up that she really, really wanted to do. And then she walked into his office and said, I want to do this job. I want to move into that, 
and I need your help. And he said, of course I'll give you my help. You've been fantastic. So she was looking at it as he wants to keep me forever. But, of course, he understood because he was high up in the organization. So he, and he knew he was someone. So she knew he's someone who has thought about his own career. I think one of the things that keeps people stuck in their job often, you know, the obvious is being so loyal to their boss that they feel that they can't abandon the boss. But it's also being extremely loyal to your team and feeling that, you know, I, I can't move on because my team would feel as if I were abandoning them. I hear that a lot as a rationale for remaining stuck in a job. Yeah, I see that too. Um, I've just built a great team is the other version of that I hear. And it's such a good team and we're working so well together and I don't want to leave it. Yeah, just means exactly. and you want to that. stay you know, where you are. People get yeah. very comfortable and become risk-averse because they're comfortable with the niche they fit into in their team, and they feel like, I, I can't abandon these people. But guess what? Those people will benefit more from your moving up because they will know you, and you have a high visibility in the organization. So if you can, again, you know, just switch your frame of thinking instead of like, I owe it to these people to stay with them, to thinking, you know, I think it'd be great for these people uh, on my team if I moved higher up and, you know, took this next position because then they'd be in a position that they were connected with someone at that level. So that's the other way to think about it that I think can be productive if you're having trouble with that, that loyalty trap that's often part of putting your job before your career. Great. Listening, Sally, listening to you, it strikes me that at the heart, at least of all the um, traps or habits or killers that we've talked, career killers that we've talked about, at the heart is this sense of avoiding risk. Yeah. Uh, fear and being afraid of not succeeding in some capacity, and therefore I'm avoiding a risk. Is that true? You know, that's something, Wanda, that I've really only become vividly aware of since the book came out. When I was writing it, I wasn't thinking of that risk theme. But that has become much more apparent as I've done programs and workshops and organizations and seen that what often is holding people back is a reluctance to take risk. Let me give you an example, and this is very common with women. Women will say, well, you know, uh, I'd love to talk more about my achievements, but that's seen differently when women do it. You know, guys seem to be able to get away with it here, but women can't. Okay, that, you know, may be true. Often it is true. But guess what? If you never take the risk to talk about what you're doing because you're anticipating what the response might be or what somebody else might think of you if you did so, then you're really going to keep then you're really going to keep yourself stuck. So, so you, 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 don't want to, you don't want to be in that place. You want to get, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, you want to get accustomed from the get-go taking limited risks because risk-averse behavior will lead you into chronic risk aversion. And so it's very important to try to do sort of counterintuitive things that that will make you uncomfortable. That's, yeah. Um, it reminds me, you're reminding me very strongly of a story, a uh, CEO that I knew and worked very closely with. And in this particular story, you had to be chair of a board and they were recruiting a new CEO and they'd gotten down to the final list. And one of the guys that he was interviewing, guys in this particular case, 
says, you know, I've never had a big mistake. And the CEO said at that moment in time, I wrote him off as a viable candidate because if it's true that he's never made a big mistake, it means he's never pushed any boundaries, he's never taken any risks. I don't want that. And two, if he's actually never really had a mistake, if that's truthful and he's pushed boundaries, then I don't want his first mistake while I'm chairman of the board. Thank you very much. No. And then three, he's lying, in which case we definitely don't want him. But that notion of you have that getting comfortable with taking risks, not wild, uncalculated, but steady, systematic, thought out, recommended risks. It's fascinating to me. This is so important, I think, particularly given the nature of competition in the global economy today. The way organizations become really successful today is through innovation, not by doing the same thing uh, over and over. Innovation is key just because the technology cycles are so rapid that influence everything from, you know, how children learn in school to how, you know, what products and services succeed in the marketplace. The, The cycles are very fast. So in order to keep up, you have to innovate. And I think there's increasing recognition at top levels in organizations that there is a strong link between the capacity for an organization to innovate, which means to survive in today's environment, and getting comfortable with people making mistakes. So I think there's much greater tolerance, you know, in engineering terms, greater tolerance at the margins for for small uh, mistakes that are the result of, of trying to take risks. And the important thing is to do that, to recognize, you know, this is a situation that I can take a risk in, and this is a situation that I shouldn't. Can I give you an example from my own Certainly. experience? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not the world's greatest driver, and I found I was becoming increasingly uncomfortable, especially with anything to do with speed or what seemed to me very risky things like, you know, making certain left turns. And what was suggested to me was that I spend a day, you know, with a race, professional race car driver and, you know, learn some skills, but also get a little bit comfortable taking some risks. So I did that. I went to a fantastic uh, Skip Barber, uh, the professional race driving school and a place where, uh, uh, you know, racers race. And, um, and I worked for two days with a pro. And I found myself doing things like going 120 miles an hour around, you know, those, those little uh, right. posts that they put up. <laughs> yeah, yep. that knocked down, but, but learning to do that. It was okay. terrifying. It was also very exhilarating and gave me a lot of confidence. Now, why do I say that's a me- measured risk? It sounds sort of off the top. If I had decided, well, I'm going to go out and drive 120 miles an hour and see what happens in order to get myself over this, that would have been a very, very poor and ill-advised thing to do. But because I was with somebody who was so skilled at doing that and who gave me confidence and whose word when he says, you know, you can do this, that I really trusted, I was able to take that risk. So it was actually a measured risk. And it changed it made me a much better, more confident, and safer driver, which is a good thing. Great. 
Sally, excellent story and what a way to end. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So thank you. My guest today is Sally Helgeson. Again, the book we've been talking about is How Women Rise. But as you can hear, these are 12 career killers that are as relevant for anybody as they are for women. And I just repeat the kind of things that we've been talking about are this notion of overvaluing expertise, trying to be a perfectionist, expecting others to notice your contributions in a passive way and putting your job before your career. Sally, excellent advice. Thanks for being a guest. Thank you, Wanda. It was a real pleasure. All right. Join us next week for some more wisdom on how to get out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.